You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy are yours in the triune God. Amen. I need to start this sermon with a couple of disclaimers. There are going to be references to a number of superheroes in this sermon. Please be assured that there are no end game spoilers. Also understand that I am a professional comic book geek and that those references would be in here whether Endgame opened this weekend or not. Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Older pastors who have been preaching for decades will sometimes bemoan the fact that they've been through the lectionary so many times that they feel they have nothing new to say. As a supply preacher who over the last dozen years has averaged maybe three sermons a year, you'd think I wouldn't be at the point where I'd be complaining like that, and you'd be right, except for one thing. Low Sunday. (laughs) The Sunday after Easter. A day when huge swaths of installed pastors, exhausted from the stresses of Lent and Holy Week, take a well-deserved break from preaching. At a lot of churches, it becomes Youth Sunday, where the youth group leads the service and writes most of the liturgy. A good strategy, because that way you get more people in the seats, because their parents and, their parents and family have to come. Other churches ask supply preachers to come in and do the job. In those dozen or so years, this is my fourth or fifth time preaching Low Sunday. And that's great. A gig is a gig, and I went to to seminary at least partially in the hope that someday I'd get to preach on every Sunday. The problem is, in all three years of the lectionary cycle, this exact Downing Thomas passage is the gospel text for the week. So it's very easy, especially for when you preach as few sermons as I do, to get a little bit frustrated that something like 10% of those sermons are on this exact text. (laughs) Because of that, I struggle to find something new and different to say about the text that's already very familiar to most people who are going to be hearing this. I try, therefore, when I'm preparing to think, when I'm preparing a Doubting Thomas sermon, to think even further outside the box. And if you know anything about me and the way I think, Going farther outside the box is saying something. Like, I'm so far away, at that point I can't even see the box. An example of that is a question that I wrote in my notes for this sermon. Is Jesus Deadpool? Seems as good a place to start as any. Every Easter season there's a meme that goes around the comics community suggesting that Wolverine was Jesus. Because of his healing factor, Wolverine is effectively immortal. And no one, not even Wolverine, has any idea how old he is. There's a comic series that suggests that he came to the Americas by crossing the land bridge from Asia. So there's a little bit of sense in the idea that Wolverine might have been around Palestine a couple thousand years ago. And healing factor after a crucifixion might look something like resurrection. Deadpool has healing factor like Wolverine, but that's not what makes me think that Jesus might be like him. No, Deadpool is known as the Merc with a Mouth 
the mercenary who never shuts up. He's constantly cracking jokes and breaking the fourth wall. For non-theater people, breaking the fourth wall is when a character turns and speaks directly to the audience about what's happening in the movie or play. It's very meta. (laughs) At one point in the first Deadpool movie, he breaks the fourth wall to tell the audience the story of how he met his roommate at a laundromat. And during that, the past Deadpool in the laundromat starts talking to the audience. A fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break, he says, that's like 16 walls. <laughs> the reason I bring it up is it's the only way I, right now I can, make, I can think to make this reading make any sense. We're, being used, we're used to being told that this text is about Jesus calling Thomas a loser for not believing when all the other disciples did. But that's not the way it happens, and it violates my first law of preaching. Any argument based on the idea that Jesus is a jerk needs to be reworked. It's a little disturbing how often I need to invoke that rule. (laughs) But the thing is, the other disciples didn't believe without seeing. Jesus did the same show and tell for them that he did for Thomas. It's just Thomas is the one who needs to ask. Jesus just walks in and and shows the other disciples. Here, here, you see? I'm not even sure that all the other disciples believed even by seeing. Knowing myself, it's hard for me to believe that there wasn't at least one person in the back of the room who had too much social anxiety to speak up about any doubts they may have had. Here's the point where Deadpool enters the picture. What if Jesus is breaking the fourth wall? What if, what if in the ultimate you see Timmy moment, Jesus is turning to look at us and say, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, I suppose we could hear that as Jesus congratulating us on how awesome it is, how awesome we are to believe even though we didn't see. Or we can ask it, use it as an opportunity to ask ourselves how well we live up to not seeing and yet believing. How often do we explicitly or implicitly ask our churches or our people around or the people around us to demonstrate Christ's presence in our lives. How often do we see unless I see this or that I won't believe that you are part of the body of Christ. When you look at the people around you, do you only believe they bear the image of God because you have seen it in them? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I'm pretty sure most of the time I don't deserve that blessing. Thinking about that saying, that saying that Jesus is fourth wall breaking and directly addressing us makes me wonder if other things he says in the passage weren't also meant directly for us. There are two things he says that I want to explore as direct messages to us. Peace be with you. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, They are retained. Let's start with the second one. I think it's easy for us to hear that and think of it as Jesus granting some kind of special powers to the people in that room. Powers that no one still around today has. But what would it mean for us to think about it in the light of Deadpool Jesus speaking directly to us? I'm going to to take away the what if and state it plainly. You 
sitting here right now and in every part of your life have the power to forgive or retain other people's sins. Yet you, yes, you can forgive people's sins. What an amazing ability. It's like a superpower. And to jump to a different superhero for a second, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) I think if we really took that power seriously, it would completely change the way we interact with other people. It's very easy for us to look at the failings of other people and think that their sins are their problem or that they are something private between them and God. But according to this text, that's not the case. It's up to us, singularly and collectively, to forgive their sins or not. Damn. If you gave me a choice of superpowers, that's definitely not the one I would pick. (laughs) It's hard work, y'all, and scary, too. How do you live with the idea that you could have forgiven someone's sins, not just for yourself, but on behalf of God, and chose not to? Or what sins would you choose to retain? News came out on Friday that the Chief Judicial Panel of the United Methodist Church upheld their national governing body's choice to retain what they perceived to be the sins of the LGBTQ community. Can I forgive them? Do I have to? But for, I know that there are places where I don't take this responsibility seriously and just automatically retain the sins of others. Whether it's the guy who cuts me off in traffic, the president who repeatedly tweets hateful things, or a denomination that, divides, that decides that my friends and I are not welcome in their churches. But forgiving people their sins is hard work and usually not very fun or rewarding. People are still going to cut me off in traffic, and others are still going to choose to retain my sins. I don't really know how to live with that power. And and so I choose to pretend that I don't have it. It's just too hard. So let's go back to the other thing Jesus said. Peace be with you. Worship services are, of course full of rituals, some of them more comfortable for us than others. For some of us, the singing of the hymns and the chanting of the psalms are inspiring and joyful practices, but for others, they're just work that needs to be done to get to some other part of the service. For some, everything revolves around the Eucharist. For others, the center moment is the sharing of the prayers of the people. But there's one weekly ritual that I doubt very few of us withheld up as being the most important, the most central part of everything we do. In fact, I know several people who actively run and hide when it comes around. It's awkward, and it involves invading people's personal space in ways that are painful and difficult for them, and it sometimes feels completely out of place and out of character. It's the passing of the peace. It can be so awkward. Coming from a denomination whose members are often referred to as the frozen chosen. (laughs) I've been to many churches where the passing of the peace consisted of standing up in your pew and stiffly shaking the hands of those people you could reach without moving your feet. (laughs) On a couple of occasions, though, I visited a church where the passing of the peace had mutated into a 20-minute ritual that combined coffee time and open space and that was in 
incredibly awkward for visitors who had no idea what was going on. It's also vital for us to remember that for many people, the passing of the peace goes far beyond awkward into triggering, traumatizing, even rapey, as the more exuberant among us heedlessly invade their space and touch them in ways that they have not and would not consent to. I don't want to defend or even support the way the passing of the peace actually happens. I do want to talk about its place and purpose in the liturgy. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has said that, for him, the perfect place for the passing of the peace to happen in worship is immediately after the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon. That way, he says, we can greet one another as saints, as clean from sin as we are ever going to be in our lives. With all due respect to Dr. Brueggemann, I'd argue that it doesn't really matter where in the service the passing of the peace happens, because it's the moment in liturgy that gives us the opportunity to exercise our superpower, to forgive and retain each other's sins. So matter, no matter where it happens, we have the same opportunity to greet each other as newly forgiven and cleansed saints, if we so choose. I promised you at the beginning that I wouldn't spoil Avengers Endgame for you. Doesn't mean I won't spoil another superhero movie for you. When I think about this power to forgive or retain that we've been giving, I can't help but think about the movie Wonder Woman. At a couple of points in the movie, Diana's mother and Ares, the villain, try to convince Diana that she should not risk herself in fighting for the lives of humans because we are irredeemably flawed and as such, we don't deserve her efforts. The turning point in the big fight at the end comes when Diana realizes that it's not about our deserving that her work, but about the love we carry within us and the love she can give. I used to want to save the world, to end war and bring peace to mankind, but then I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light. I learned that inside every one of them, there will always be both. That choice each must make for themselves, something no hero can ever defeat. I've touched the darkness that lives in between the light, seen the worst in the world and the best, seen the terrible things men to do each other in the name of hatred and the lengths they'll go to for love. Now I know only love can save this world. So I stay, I fight, and I give for the world I know can be. This is my mission now, forever. You have the power to forgive, to love your neighbor as yourself, and you have the power to not forgive, to retain. No one can make that choice for you. Time and again, there will be people that you feel don't deserve your forgiveness. Maybe they don't. Maybe their forgiveness is someone else's responsibility not yours. In the same way, maybe your job is to forgive a person that maybe someone else can't. But only love can save the world. So I want to charge you and charge myself to err on the side of forgiveness. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon podcast for House for All Sinners and Saints. 
If you like what you've been hearing and would like to support the ongoing ministry of our church, just go to our website, www.houseforall.org, and click on Give.